The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Is your organization a talent magnet? Is your culture the envy of the business market? Top organizations need top leaders. Make sure that you are that leader. This show will ensure that you are. Welcome to I Lead, the Leadership Connection with Dr. Linda Sharkey. Leaders today are more than just results. They are about creating legacies of great people, driving winning organizations, and raising the bar for themselves and that of their teams. Now, here is your host, Dr. Linda Sharkey. Welcome. I'm Linda Sharkey. I'm your host of I Lead the Leadership Connection, and uh, this is my first show of the new year. So, Happy New Year to everyone. I hope that you had a wonderful and peaceful celebration, and I wish everybody the joys of a great work environment. We spend a lot of our life in, at work and with our colleagues, probably more than any other place um, and it should be a great place to work. It should be a wonderful opportunity to grow and to learn and to live our dreams. Which leads me into my first guest of the year, Richard Sheridan. He is uh, the co-founder or the CEO and chief storyteller, which I love, and co-founder of Menlo Innovations. He's also the author of Joy, Inc. Um, he landed his first job as a programmer, creating the first email system at the McCabe Intermediate School District. He has decades of experience um, in the technology field. He has his bachelor's in computer science, uh, master's in computer engineering, and he worked his way through a number of Ann Arbor technology companies, ending up at Interface Systems. So he has a lot of experience in the business world and in working his way up. It's through that experience that he did not experience joy that first draw him in, that first drew him into programming as a kid. So with that, I'd like to introduce Richard Sheridan. I'm just very thrilled to have you, Richard. I feel honored that you were able to take the time to speak with me today on the show. Well, it's wonderful to be here and it's a great subject. It is a great subject, one that's near and dear to my heart. And we have a mutual friend, my partner, Mary Pratt, in um, Dubai. And I have to thank Mary because I would never have run into you, though I've I've heard a lot about you. I would never have personally run into you without her and her connection. So I'm excited. And I think we're doing a blog together um, this year. I'm I'm sure we are. Mary is uh, doing a blog with both of us. So that should be a lot of fun. So tell me, Richard. Tell me a little bit about Menlo Innovations for our listeners so they understand what the focus of your company is. Yeah, at our heart, we're a uh, software design and development firm. That's what we do for a living. Uh, But our mission since the beginning of Menlo was to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And we do that by focusing on what we call the business value of joy, which is a weird word to use in a business context, I know. Uh, even though somebody like you is probably very comfortable using that word, most of the business world is not. And you, you are correct about that. <laughs> so our, we even define joy here. What we look at uh, for the work that we do is that we want to delight the people we serve. We want to delight the people who are one day going to touch the work that happens in the room here at Menlo. The work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds. We wanted to get out into the world. We wanted to be delivered to the world. And we wanted to delight the people we serve. And so everything we do here, every process, every practice, our thinking, uh, the very hearts of the members of the team, is to produce that kind of joy in the world. Now, we don't believe for a second you can produce joy in the world unless you have joy inside the company as well. 
So what led you to that belief? What was the experience? I, I, I know in your bio, you know, you've done a lot, worked for a lot of technology companies, and some can be pretty ruthless. I've worked for a few myself and consulted with a few. But what led you to believe in joy? You know, for me, it was really um, born uh, in my mind as a kid. When I would do things for others, with my hands. Uh, I can remember a shelving unit I built for my mom when I was just 10 years old, and she was so delighted that I'd put this thing together, sort of an Ikea-type unit, without even asking permission. I just built it for her. I set up, set it up just the way she wanted and just the place she wanted it, and she's so delighted it brought tears to her eyes. And that re- recollection oh. of mine as a 10-year-old led me sort of to this idea that engineering work, when done well, can delight people, uh, people who don't know everything we know. And yet most of my career was spent working on projects that often never saw the light of day. They got canceled before they shipped. Or if they did, the people who got them were frustrated. They, they, didn't, um, they didn't understand how to use our wonderfully designed technology. We'd have to create training classes and write user manuals. And I began to wake up to an idea that started to really bother me. Because what I kept hearing over and over again in conversations of the teams I was a part of is we would refer to the people we serve as stupid users. And wow. later, we'd write dummies books for those poor people. And it dawned on <laughs> right, me. That's true. There's a whole series of dummies manuals out there. Right. I bought a number of them, and, actually. And, and what other industry can get away with calling the people they serve Stupid. Dummies. And so I looked at it and said, no, there has to be a better way. And I knew, based on experiences I had had directly with greatly designed products, that in fact just the opposite could be true, that you could actually design things that were a delight to use because they took into account with empathy and compassion the people who one day would use it. And so... I started to pursue this idea in my head. I didn't exactly know in my earliest days of my career how I was going to get there, but I knew that's what I wanted. And it wasn't until I was a vice president that I finally got to that moment where I was able to redesign a team, construct it in a different way, create a separate group of people on that team who were specifically focused on going out into the world, studying the people we serve, and then having a programming team that could work with pride, work with quality, because there's nothing worse than having a greatly designed product that doesn't work. And so there were two pieces That's to this. Exactly One right. was, how do we delight the users with great design, and how do we build software that works every day? And that became almost a maniacal obsession of mine to pursue. And all of that thinking one day led to the creation of my current company, Menlo Innovations. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So this is something you had a passion for at a very, very early age. I think the first time I had an experience that uh, that I recall in this regard was when I was 10. Wow. Wow. So what, you know, when you were working your way up through the technology field, what were some of the experiences? I know you talked about it. You know, you design stuff, never seen the light of day. You spend all this time on things and, you know, manuals for dummies. What were the kind of, what were the cultures like that you were working in? Because a lot of what you're talking about is creating a, a sort of organizational culture. So what, what were the cultures like at these organizations? You know, it, it swung back and forth between two different models, and sometimes both models went in operation simultaneously. One model was chaos. You know, firefighting mm. all the time, phones ringing off the hook, uh, problems going unsolved never any time to make things work the really way they really needed to work, just putting out the next fire that came up in front of you. Often those were long days, tiring days where you got nothing done. Then the other world was the one where when a company tried to get on top of that and really try and sort of batten down the hatches and make sure that everything was going to go well, they'd create this sort of soul-crushing bureaucracy. So you, yeah. you have templated documents, you'd have committees and stage gates and different departments checking things and checkers of checkers and all that kind of stuff. And so you went from the land of never getting anything done off into the land of never getting anything started. 
And I would I swing that. back and forth <laughs> between those two worlds. And then sometimes you'd be in both simultaneously because when you get into crushing bureaucracy, particularly in a large organization, people learn to work around the system. Right. And all that means typically is you're just choosing chaos again. And so, uh, you know, it was, I was looking at this thing. I'm not sure there's a way out. And quite frankly, I was thinking get out, getting out of the industry entirely sort of in my mid-30s, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And I knew that there was this burning desire inside of me to do a better job at what we were doing as, a, as an industry. And so my search during that time led me to authors and books, but not yep. books on technology because, quite frankly, technology is easy compared to organizing human beings into effective teams. And that's Amen. Really where my Amen. Was. Isn't that true? <laughs> so, so that's really where that, that this all came from for me. Yeah, that that is that is really fascinating. And you know, would you say this is sort of a broad brushed question? Um, but a lot of people come to study Silicon Valley and and the uh, leadership approaches and the leadership model of innovation. Would you? I, it seems to me that we have a lot of companies that are organized the way you're talking about, even in Silicon Valley. And I'm and I'm curious what your view is on that. Well, I don't think there's a part of the world uh, or part of the country here in the United States that's immune from either chaos or bureaucracy. And so you can find Mm -hmm. examples of this everywhere. I grew up in southeast Michigan. That's where our company is located. We've got the big three. This was the Silicon Valley of the 1940s and 50s. This is where everything was happening. And if you want to see crushing bureaucracy, go inside of some of the world's largest automotive companies. Uh, and if you want to see right. chaos, look at when things go wrong at those large companies and literally sometimes their products start killing people. And I think you can find it in Silicon Valley. You can find it in Southeast Michigan. You can find it all over the world. And you can find counterexamples, kind of the radicals, if you will, the crazies, who decided, you know what, I'm getting off of that merry-go-round and I'm going to do things differently. Yeah. That's true. So I wanted to just uh, highlight um, that you won the Alfred P. Sloan Award for Business Excellence in the Workplace um, for eight straight years. That's that's quite an accomplishment. That's um, um, We're pretty proud of can that. Can you tell me about that? You should be proud of it. That's, that's quite a big <laughs> thing. Tell, tell me a little um, bit about that. Well, for us... Uh, we, we have a lot of uh, organizations who want to measure us because when they hear about us, they actually recommend we apply for their awards. And that was the case with the Alpha P. Sloan Award. Someone I knew quite well who knew us was participating as one of the leaders of that program. And they said, oh, you guys got to participate in this program because I think you'd be a perfect fit for it. And obviously we were. And for us, we don't pursue those awards for awards' sake. We actually like what they study about us. It tells us something about ourselves. And interestingly, yeah. uh, what they put a lot of Go emphasis ahead. on is workplace flexibility. They um, uh, work-life balance, that sort of thing. Well, we've got that in spades here. Um, we work 40-hour work weeks. We never work weekends. We never deny or delay vacation requests. We let new moms and dads bring in their babies to work. In fact, little Oliver's here today. So if you hear a baby in the background, uh, you'll know that it's three months, uh, Oliver. And uh, we've had 13 Menlo babies in the last eight years. The moms can bring, or the dads, bring in their babies all day, every day, should they choose. And many of them do for up to three, four, five months. Wow, that's that's. Outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. That's That's very exciting. We're at break. Stay with us. We're talking to Richard Sheridan, uh, eight-year award winner of Business Excellence in the Workplace uh, from the Alfred P. Sloan um, School, MIT. And we're talking about joy at work. And I just would like to highlight that you can have joy at work and you can do the right things by your people and still make great profits. Not incompatible. Stay with us. We're talking to Richard Sheridan. We'll be back after break. Find 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Dr. Linda Sharkey promotes fact-based solutions for global organizations and leaders that are known to drive business success. Do you want to put the wow in your talent practices? How about a spring in your leadership approaches? Coaching and leadership development are proven methods that, if done right, really do make good leaders great. If you want a no-nonsense, practical approach that will enable you to compete anywhere in the world with measurable results, contact Linda today. Visit lindasharkey.com. Again, that's lindasharkey.com. Hi, I'm John Rainey, Chief Financial Officer of United Airlines, and I'm honored to be the National Chair for the 2015 March for Babies campaign for the March of Dimes. United is a proud supporter of the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more mothers have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Please join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit marchofdimes.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned in to I Lead, the Leadership Connection. To speak to Dr. Linda Sharkey or her guest, please call in to one 866 Four seven two five seven nine zero. That's one eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero. Or you can tweet the show at hashtag I Lead TLC. We'd also love to hear from you by email. The email address is radio at lindasharkey.com. Now back to I Lead the Leadership Connection. Welcome back. I'm Linda Sharkey, your host. I lead the Leadership Connection, and I'm talking to Richard Sheridan, the CEO uh, of Menlo Innovations, a software company, winner of the, for eight years, the Albert Sloan Award uh, for Business Excellence, which is really quite uh, exciting because the criteria from Sloan is pretty stringent. Um, What I loved about what you were saying is that you don't seek these awards that come after you because of the really interesting and unique model that you have and your passion for having joy in the workplace. When we went for break, you were talking about some of the practices that you have around workplace place flexibility. What are the ones that you're most proud of in addition to having people bring their babies to work, which I think is great? Well, first and foremost, it has to do with what our goal is in the world, and that is what we want to do is produce this great working software, and we know that we have to do that with a sustainable work pace. So we tie everything we do back to the core mission of Menlo, which from our beginning days was to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And we knew in order to accomplish that very, very serious mission, we were going to have to do some things differently. Our fundamental belief is that tired people make bad software, so we didn't want to have tired people working for us, and typically uh, our industry operates in death march culture. You have people coming in working 24-7, around the clock, weird hours, Uh, they take their work with them on vacation, all that kind of stuff. Here we work 40-hour work weeks, we never deny or delay vacation requests, And when you leave the office, you are essentially cut off from Menlo electronically. When you're on vacation, we remind you not to try and check in electronically with us. We want you to enjoy your vacation. Now, we think this has tremendous benefits for the staff. We think that makes us a delightful place to work. But ultimately, there's a very serious business purpose behind everything we do. If we have energized human beings working for us, working at a sustainable work pace over a long period of time, we can outperform our competition, and we regularly do. Yeah, that is really um, a fascinating statement. You know, you say that to most corporations, they would say, say, I mean, do you monitor the time that people take off or any of that kind of thing, Rich? Uh, You know, we have um, four weeks of paid vacation plus a dozen holidays, 
and people turn in timesheets so they we know when they're taking them. Uh, and then we have other options for them uh, if they need more time off than that. Uh, so, yeah, there's a monitoring of it, but it's not the kind of monitoring that probably most corporations expect. For instance, we don't have an HR department here. Uh, we have people who monitor benefits and payroll and that sort of thing, but not the t- typical HR function. Now, why didn't you go after an HR function? Why, why didn't you put that into place? Which I think is fascinating, yeah. and I also happen to think it's the way the world is going to be starting to go. But why did you opt to do that? Most things we decided not to do were based on experiences that we saw in our old previous professional lives before we started Menlo, where you started creating departments that would worry about very specific things, and seemingly no one else would worry about them because that group is going to take care of that stuff. But when it comes to the people who work for you, that has to be the attention of the entire team. There's no way you can outsource that part of your company to another group because it's too endemic to what we're trying to do as a business. We are a human business. Uh, you know, there's, yes, are there tables, chairs, and computers here? Are there four walls and air conditioning and heat and light? Keep mental going, sure. But those costs pale in comparison to the humans who walk into our door every day. And so right. if the focus of our attention is the sustainable human pace that we can produce great software with, and the focus of our team has to be in taking care of the humans. And we didn't believe for a second that you could turn over that responsibility to another department. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. How do you think that, uh, you know, obviously this has been a great positive experiment. So do you have the typical human resource problems that a lot of companies have? You know, I think we have every problem every company has by and large but we tend to find them sooner and correct them while they're still small. And so, therefore, it's not like we're trying to be perfect, and it's not that we are perfect because we aren't. But because of the focused attention on all of these things, we tend to see the problems sooner and work on them before they blaze out of control. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you fire people? We hire, we promote, we don't promote, we fire, just like everybody else does. We just lose like people that we wish we hadn't. We have people who leave for a variety of reasons. Again, all the same issues everybody has. Yeah. Do you find, uh, where do you put most of your emphasis when it comes to human resources? On, in the hiring process? Or what, what do you look for in uh, talent? Well, we have an unusual work practice here. Number one, we work in one big open room. And so if you can hear any background noise at all, it's because I'm out in the middle of the room with everybody else. I actually asked during this phone call for everybody just to talk a little bit quieter so that you wouldn't hear the background noise as much. But um, So we work in one big open room. We work two to a computer, so we're always working in pairs. The pairs are assigned, and we switch them every five working days. So two people working on the same computer at the same time all day long for five days, and then the pairs switch. The reason I bring that up in context of your question is this has to drive our hiring practices. What we look for first and foremost when people are joining Menlo is do you have good kindergarten skills? Do you play well with others? Do you share? Because this is the way we work. We found the traditional hiring practices of reviewing resumes and literally interviewing people uh, doesn't work. And so we, uh, we threw out looking at resumes as a way to filter who gets to come in the door for an interview or not. And we threw out asking questions during the interview process. We make it an audition. People literally practice in front of us being good kindergartners with another candidate. And we do it in a group setting. So we'll have 30, 40, 50 people come in at a time. We pair them off with a person they've never met. And we give them very explicit instructions. Your job is to make the person sitting next to you look good. To help them so much that they um, have the best chance possible of getting a second interview. And, of course, the person sitting there might be saying, well, but, but it's me who wants a second interview. And we're like, yeah, we know. We can watch and watch how you support the person sitting next to you, and that will be how we judge whether you get to come in for a second interview. They do that and for what's 20 your, minutes. Ha, ha, yep, is it common that people are able to do that, or what's your experience with that? <laughs> um, it's a little bit unnerving, uh, as you might yeah, imagine. Okay. So we send people out... Uh, Description of our interview practice ahead of time so they know what to expect. We are not trying to surprise anybody. I think Magazine made it their cover story uh, a few years ago. 
on how we interview. So you can go online and read about it. Lee Buchanan did a wonderful article on us. And so uh, no secrets here. We do want them to succeed. So we will send lots of uh, work ahead of time if they want to read about us, if they want to understand what they're about to experience. When they come in the room, they can at least have the same minds for what to expect. So that, that, that leads to the next question, because a lot of the philosophy, and it happens to be mine as well, is good interviewing process, whether it's, you know, the way you're, you're doing it, um, but really taking time to think about the people that are really going to fit in your organization. And it looks to me like you're going after, you know, behavioral and cultural fit as a, as a significant factor. Uh, eliminates the need to um, deal with wrong hires at the end. You know, it's, it's just like everything else. You know, you get a good process in the beginning, then you do delight your uh, folks in the end. So do you find that you... You you misstep, um, and and when you do, what did you learn from that on, about people that you brought in? You know, we find because our workplace is so different and our work style is so different that we really won't know for a while whether you can acclimate to our environment. And so we give you the best possible chance to figure that out in both directions. You know, a lot of interview processes are very one-sided. You know, come in, interview with us. We'll decide whether you want to work here or not, or whether we want you to work here or not. The question becomes, is there a way to give the person who's interviewing the best possible chance to decide whether this is the place for them? And so because our interview process is very two-way in the way it proceeds uh, from that first interview through the end of the trial period, um, We've given the person on the other side of the fence the best possible chance to say, I think this is a place I can work. Now, we don't assume through any of that that we're going to be perfect. And we, again, want to give the person the best possible chance of success. And that's where our feedback process comes in. That's where we start to give people, even during the interview process, very explicit feedback on what our expectations are, where we think they might be missing those expectations, and what we think they might have to do in order to make up the gap. We never expect them to be perfect after our trial period, but we do expect them to make progress. And even afterwards, uh, we expect them to continue to make progress. And this is done through uh, a feedback system that's all peer-led, so there are no bosses here. There's no reporting relationships between people. And so it's all peer review, and you get to work with your peers to find out how you're doing. All of these things are much more difficult than the traditional ways I used to do things, but I think they produce much better results, so it's worth the effort. But even then, even through all that, we are still imperfect. Through all that, we still make mistakes in one direction or another, and then we have to uh, figure out what to do when that happens. Uh, What I tell the team is, throughout all of this, all I want to make sure is we treat people with dignity and respect. So it's the team that possibly decides that somebody is, you know, it's time for somebody to move on. Is that right? Of course, because think about how we work. We work in pairs, two people, one computer all day long, and we switch the pairs every five days. Who better to evaluate whether you're working out well in the team than the people who are one day going to sit next to you for up to 40 hours in a work week? I couldn't possibly have the same insight as the CEO of the company as the person who is actually going to spend 40 hours with you. Well, that's really true. And, you know, I was just reading a recent um, article, I forget where and, and what, but um, about pairing people together at the computer and that that really does, from a brain point of view, um, spark much more innovation. What, what caused you to think about that design? I, I think it's a great one, actually. You know, there was a guy named Kent Beck, who wrote a book back in 1999-2000 timeframe called Extreme Programming Explained, where he outlined this particular practice of pair programming to programmers working at the same computer together, writing code together. And he challenged the industry in many ways. He challenged the thinking of our entire industry. And I was one of those readers, and I looked at it. And here's what he asked. He said, think back in your career. When did you produce the best work as a programmer? And he said, my experience is it was when I was working closely with another human being. And if 
if you can get two people working that closely together, we can actually achieve better results. A lot of people used to think that software development was an individual typing contest. But in fact, software development is a problem-solving contest, and two heads are always better at one in solving problems in a quality fashion than one person working alone. Yeah, and I I really agree with that. I mean, I, I, I find that even with myself, I'm I'm astounded when I'm in a uh, working with another person versus working by myself. Uh, you know the insights that they'll have, the the other ways that they'll look at something. I'm always, oh wow, that was really terrific. We sometimes um, it's just serendipitous too, right? Somebody says, hey, did you ever think about it like this? And and they might not even have a well formed idea in their head, but just simply that bump pushes you to better thinking. Yeah, I, I completely ag- agree with that, which is why I rarely write uh, any books by myself because I find it so much more, um, well, one, I find it's much more fun and, uh, and, and it's much more fun to share ideas with another person. We're at break. Stay with us. We're talking to Richard Sheridan, the CEO of Menlo Innovations, a much uh, written about organization. And if you're listening to this show, you know exactly why, because he's broken all the rules of what everybody believes is the way organizations have to be structured. So we'll be back. Stay with us. out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Dr. Linda Sharkey promotes fact-based solutions for global organizations and leaders that are known to drive business success. Do you want to put the wow in your talent practices? How about a spring in your leadership approaches? Coaching and leadership development are proven methods that have done right really do make good leaders great. If you want a no-nonsense, practical approach that will enable you to compete anywhere in the world with measurable results, contact Linda today. Visit lindasharkey.com. Again, that's lindasharkey.com. Hi, I'm John Rainey, Chief Financial Officer of United Airlines, and I'm honored to be the National Chair for the 2015 March for Babies campaign for the March of Dimes. United is a proud supporter of the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more mothers have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Please join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit marchofdimes.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned in to I Lead, the Leadership Connection. To speak to Dr. Linda Sharkey or her guest, please call in to one 866 Four seven two five seven nine zero. That's one eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero. Or you can tweet the show at hashtag I Lead TLC. We'd also love to hear from you by email. The email address is radio at lindasharkey.com. Now back to I Lead the Leadership Connection. Welcome back. I'm Linda Sharkey, your host of I Lead the Leadership Connection, and with me today is Richard Sheridan, CEO of Menlo Innovations, a software company. Much written about, very interesting conversation about what I believe is practices that we're going to have to take more seriously in the 21st century workplace. So, um, Rich, a couple of CEOs that I've interviewed call themselves the chief culture officer. What, what do you think of that? And and you call yourself the chief storyteller. Let's talk a little bit about that. What do you What do you think about your role as shaping and molding and managing? You know, not managing, but ensuring the culture is what it is. And why do you call yourself the chief storyteller? The title actually came out of a sort of a playfulness here at Menlo at first, and then it dawned on me how important that role is in a company in any culture. Uh, we do a lot of tours here at Menlo. We'll have almost 4,000 people come through our doors this year alone from all over the planet to come see us, to walk through our space, walk through this big open room, learn about us, learn 
why we do things the way we do them, exactly how we do them, and probe in, ask questions, and so on. We have found the best way over the years to convey why we do things the way we do them is through story, uh, through telling real-world stories, either of, say, my painful past or anybody here's painful past of how things used to work where we used to be and what kind of results we were producing, much like we talked about at the very beginning segment. And then why does this work better? And the best way we can do that is through storytelling. Well, I used to lead a lot of the early tours because, you know, just a few of us here, and when those tours were coming in, I would typically be available, and I would lead the tours. And I found myself, keep, kept, I kept getting drawn back into telling stories, telling stories of my personal history, my personal painful history, as well as uh, the stories of Menlo since our inception. And uh, at a certain point, the tour counts uh, tipped up to a point where I could no longer do them all myself. And so uh, they started pairing me, uh, as you can imagine, is a natural thing for us to do. And I would be walking around the space with a pair partner. And in order for me to successfully um, hand over this baton to somebody who would lead the tours without me, I had to give them space in order to talk. And what I found them doing was telling the stories I had been telling all these years, but telling them through their own lens. Oh, interesting. And I found that a little bit interesting because they wouldn't tell the stories exactly the way I told them. And I would start to wonder, should I coach them to make sure they tell it exactly the way I do? But what I found was their stories were more interesting because they made them personal. And then the remarkable thing is they started telling their own stories, stories I had never heard before, stories about Menlo that I hadn't directly experienced because maybe I wasn't here that day or I wasn't even in that part of the room when the story was unfolding. And it began to dawn on me, this is the way we have propelled civilization forward over the millennia. Campfire songs, uh, totem poles, um, right. uh, our anthems, our, our stories, um, uh, you know, this is, this is as essential to human history as, as anything. And I realized that this is true of companies as well, that in many ways the way we propel the cultures of our companies forward is through storytelling. And when storytelling is absent, strong cultures are typically absent as well. Yeah, I think that that's really true. Uh, when you when you when you think about history over time, I was a history undergrad. That really it was propelled through storytelling and really powerful stories. And uh, you know, corporate America is not great at storytelling. You know, they're great at pitch making and great at chart showing, but not really great at telling personal stories. I, th- I think that's so important for conveying what is effective. In, in your culture. Tell me, what was your most painful story? What was, you know, you said you, you, you told painful, about the painful situations. What, what was that story, the most painful one? <laughs> there was a moment in my history uh, where um, I was working under a pretty tyrannical boss for a number of years, and I began personally unplugging from work. I would still show up every day, but I would show up as late as I possibly could and not get in trouble. I used to take the longest possible drives to work I could in order to arrive as uh, as late as I could. So I found there all these back, back roads of Ann Arbor, dirt roads, past little farm fields and churches and that sort of thing. So instead of the way most people devise their route to work where they find the most efficient path possible, I tried to find the least efficient path possible <laughs> so, I could, so I could spend time away from work. And um, so uh, uh, then I would try and leave as early as possible and I would try and um, uh, distract myself from the work during work. And this was going on for a few years. And uh, I remember my wife looking at me, realizing that, you know, the soul had kind of dropped out of my eyes. And she looked at me, and I was still in my 30s at this point. She's like, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. And so that sort of collection of feelings over a long period of time is really what was born out of um, the frustrations that I'd been feeling where I was either firefighting all the time or I was... um, uh, or I was watching projects miss their deadlines or overspend their budgets, 
and you know, or we were fighting in meetings with other people and not producing the results I knew was possible. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I bet you know, I bet you there's you know the engagement scores are, have been at an all time uh, high, I guess, lack of engagement high uh, for years. Um, and I bet you there's so. Well, I bet you I know there are so many people like you at the workplace that have just checked out. And, you know, it's amazing because so many people will say, oh, I've got really a non-performer here. Well, it wasn't that you were a non-performer. You were just not allowed to perform in the way that you wanted to perform. What's funny now is if I tell what I just told you to anybody who works here at Menlo, they look at me like I'm describing another human being. They, They look at me and say, Rich, I can't imagine that version of you. Because I'm typically the earliest riser and the latest stayer, and I'm energized from one end of the the other, and um, you know, it, and they can't even picture that version of me that isn't this optimistic, joyful person. Yeah, you know, that's also interesting too. What you just said, because uh, very often two things happen when people are in a toxic environment, like you were talking about, your worst case story. Um, very often, they will take on those toxic. Uh, traits in order to survive. That didn't happen with you. And the you second know, I got thing quiet. is that it's sound... Go ahead. What, what did you say? I got quiet. You know, I just sort of, um, it was almost like a turtle. I just kind of pulled into my shell. Yeah, that is interesting. And and the the other thing is that, you know, you're, you're first to work and last to leave. Very often, people look at the leader and say, oh, because they're looking, everybody does this, they're looking for cues from you of what the expected behavior is. So how do you keep this 40-hour-a-week sort of mantra going when my guess is you don't work 40 hours a week? My guess is you work a lot more. That's true. I I actually tell the world I work half days, and I I get to decide which 12 hours that is. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, so my behavior is not one I expect the team to model. Um, but it's socially understood here that there is not a greater expectation than that for the people who work for us. And I tell them, I say, look, you know, because the, the, uh, what's interesting is they flip it around back on me. They will look back at me and say, Rich, you should be doing this too. I went on a vacation back in February, and we have this policy of no email checking while you're on vacation. Right. And before I went, Anna looked at me, who schedules my life through calendar and email and all that sort of thing, and she said, Rich, I think you need a vacation too. Can you turn off your email for a week? And I kind of like groaned. I'm like, really? <laughs> and she yeah. said, well, why don't we work on it together? And we did. And she took over all my email while I was gone. And when I came back from vacation after a week, I had 35 messages waiting for me that she decided only I could handle. Well, I will tell you, if I had just simply turned off my email and not um uh, paid attention to it and no one else did, I'd probably have come back to a thousand emails. A lot of them junk, of course. It can just be tossed right. to the side and not even ever looked at. But Ann and I are connected well enough together. She knew what to look for. She knew what she could handle herself. And she knew what I had to handle on my own. And by doing so, I actually had, maybe for the first time in all the years of Menlo, an enjoyable vacation where my family wasn't watching me check an email while I was on vacation. And it was wow, delightful. That, that- that's so a great fact, story. What's so happening I'm, here? I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're going to keep that going, right? Of course, right? And what's happening here is as opposed to people looking to me and saying, we want to be more like Kim, they're like, no, they're looking at me saying, no, you need to be more like us. When can we get yeah, you that's, back that's on great. a rational work base? That is really a, a great story. Uh, what... Um, what what do you see as the predictions for the future of work? If you were going to say, um, what are the most important changes that need to be made as, you know, we're at the turn of the century. Um, the workforce is very different. There's much more diversity. We're global. It's fast. There's all, you know, I don't need to go through the litany and the list of things that are changing around us and turning our thought processes on a on edge, what would be your predictions for the future of work? So I think we are entering this fascinating I tend to refer to it as the age of imagination, where we are no longer constrained by the typical things that used to constrain us. 
Uh, if you just look at my industry alone, uh, the power of computing, the amount of storage, the displays, the lightweight nature of our always connected devices literally means that the physical constraints of the computer are no longer constraining what we can think to do. It is simply our imagination that is constraining us. And therefore, we need to stay in that most human part of our brains in order to take advantage of the age that we're in. We need to stay in that part of our brains, you know, the prefrontal cortex, that often gets shut down when we manage people with fear, uncertainty, and doubt, ambiguity. So I actually view one of my roles as a leader is to try and pump fear out of the room, pump ambiguity out of the room, create a feeling of safety for everybody who works so that people can begin to trust one another. And if they trust one another, they can begin to collaborate. And if they collaborate, uh, you start to get teamwork. Because I think we are also entering an age where no longer can individual heroes be the answer. This is no longer your project. It's our project working together. And a lot of this is what we need to foster in our schools with our children. A lot of it is how we need to organize our teams at work. Because if we can get that place, we can create a feeling of safety, get the teamwork that emanates out of that get people really working together, then we get to a place of creativity, energy, innovation, imagination, and invention, which is, I think, where every company on the planet wants to get to. Right, and but it's so interesting. We've created all these rules and all these policies. Many of them are HR policies, uh, you know, that just don't, uh, that just do exactly the opposite. They are designed to control and not designed to unleash the imagination. It's it's really something. I have one question that came in um, from uh, was emailed in from a view a listener, and I I just like to ask it. It's our final question, and and um, so we don't have a lot of time. But um, what it is is I I think every business person. Um, should read your book, is, is the person that said, which is your joy, Inc. <laughs> uh, which, so that's a nice plug for you. I, I agree. That, <laughs> if I asked you about leaders and followers at Menlo's Innovation, you would say that there are no managers and everyone's a leader. Can you give some examples of when people at Menlo stepped up and became leaders? Did it surprise you? And how does that dynamic actually work in practice? That's a big question. You know, if, if you look at traditions of how companies have typically been organized, managers attempt to control. Leaders right. have to work to influence. Control feels easier. I just tell you to do something, you go do it. That seems easy. But of course, by doing that, you are now, if, if that's our only relationship between the two of us, you stop working every time I stop telling Whereas if I can craft a company where influential leaders start springing up, suddenly I'm no longer the bottleneck. I'm not the one everybody's coming to saying, well, Rich didn't tell us what to do next, so I'm not sure what to do. Now they simply begin leading. And I will tell you, we had this disaster in our space on Friday. Uh, we have, uh, we're in a building where there are, there's a restaurant above us and their dishwasher exploded or something and hundreds of gallons of water filled our space. Fortunately, we didn't hit any computers, uh, and we have a concrete floor. So the disaster wasn't anywhere near what it could have been, but whoever was in the room at the time, and I wasn't here, uh, my co-founder wasn't here at the time and the team just stepped up and started dealing with the disaster, not just uh, you know, dealing with the immediacy of let's make sure that, um, you know, the computers are out of the way. They started creating this little dam to keep it away from the conference we had that have carpet, and they took a extension cord on the floor started taping it over uh, so that uh, there was like a little, little barrier there to keep the water contained before it got to those rooms. You can imagine in a in a control based environment, people would look around and go, "Well, who's who's in charge of this? What, 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 what am I supposed really, to do?" Yeah, yeah, it'd be really terrible if you know the water gets in. Oh, look, the water got under the carpeting. Oh my gosh, you know that's a disaster. Yeah, what but, are we gonna do? Yeah, well, Rich, but, that, that you know, that's just a 
great answer. And, you know, unfortunately, we're coming up against time. Sure. You know, I could definitely do more of this interview, and we would love to have you back on the show if you'd be willing to come back on. This was a great way to start the year with CEO Richard Sheridan. Um, just really great to have a conversation. I, I hope that your message emanates with and, uh, and um, excites other CEOs and other leaders to think about how they can make a difference and they can really bring joy into their own personal lives uh, at work as well as the lives of others. So, again, thank you so much for being with me, Rich, in, in a great start of the new year. I appreciate this conversation and just think the lessons that you've learned and the lessons that you've shared here are things that every leader should think about. Our next show coming up uh, for the second show in the new year is with Lee uh, Elias, who is a hockey coach and wrote a book uh, and actually applied the lessons from his book to how he builds organizations to help them think like a fan so that they build really brand loyalty. So, again, stay with us next week. Thank you for being part of uh, 2016 and the I Lead Leadership Connection Show. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of I Lead, the Leadership Connection. Please join Dr. Linda Sharkey again for another show next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a successful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.